Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host and I'm still here now currently in Edinburgh in the Stand Up Tragedy HQ but by the time you listen to this I won't be here anymore. I'll be back in London. Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. What we do here is we share tragedy. On the podcast it's in audio form and we're going out daily all the way through the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We'll have musicians, we'll have comedians, we'll have spoken word artists, we'll have storytellers, we'll have all kinds of tragedy here to share with you and we're also going to have conversations with people about the Edinburgh Fringe and about tragedy and we're going to be showcasing some of the tragic moments that people have shared with us. One of the ways that people have told tragedy throughout history is through storytelling and tragedy through storytelling often offers a cathartic experience for the performer and for the audience as they go through this experience together. And we've had some really moving and some really funny and some really thoughtful storytellers performing with us up here in Edinburgh at the Fiddler's Elbow. For example, Daniel Simpson has completely changed his life. Without giving too much away, he severed all ties from his job as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times and attempted to bring peace to the Balkans through a music festival. And he now travels the world telling his story. So let's hear what he had to say about that. Hello. (laughs) Has anyone here ever dreamed about changing the world? That's good, because I'm here to tell you how not to do it. Okay, well, imagine it's one of those nights where you're really, really wrecked, and uh, despite that, you're feeling pretty lucid. Um, You've not only just cracked the meaning of life, but you've come up with a plan to put the world to rights. And now imagine you go to bed and you wake up in the morning still feeling the same way, and you decide to actually do something about it. That's the kind of stupid idea that almost got me killed. My plan was to start a Balkan summer of love. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you might be asking yourself at this point, what impact's that going to have on the world? But uh, it pays to remember that the First World War started in the Balkans when a Serb shot dead the heir to the Austrian throne. Fast forward a few decades and Serbs were accused of starting the wars that had killed Yugoslavia. Now, these had finished by the time I moved to Serbia, but not a lot had changed. The country was run by the Mafia, and most young people dreamed of leaving. So I thought, what if it became Ibiza crossed with Glastonbury? (laughs) And I thought, this would be quite easy to engineer. All I'd have to do would be to get the government to decriminalise soft drugs, strike a deal with a few cheap airlines, take advantage of the copious amounts of cheap alcohol and attractive females and males, and uh, invite all the young people from Western Europe to switch their holiday plans. And because I was a journalist, I was working for the New York Times as their Balkans correspondent, I actually knew a few people who might be able to make this happen. So, uh, the other crucial bit of information to impart at this stage of proceedings is to uh, remind everybody that this was about 10 years ago. And uh, at that time, working for the New York Times, you might imagine, is quite a prestigious job, but uh, it would have required me to participate in uh, enabling the invasion of Iraq. Uh, which I didn't think was what journalists were supposed to be doing, but my boss seemed to have other ideas. So um, I was at this time thinking it was much more interested to get wasted. 
and uh, not bother with the day job too much. And uh, this had led me into contact with some very interesting characters uh, who seemed to populate Belgrade in large numbers. One of these was a gentleman uh, who admittedly was a bit strange. Uh, for a start, he spoke like a Kalashnikov, but uh, he was uh, a man with charming... Uh, Recklessness is really all I can say, and uh, he gave me the courage to start to do exactly the same sort of thing as him, which was to uh, come up with these kind of daft ideas and go ahead with them. And he said, we could have a festival in the centre of Belgrade at a place called Big War Island. <laughs> now, Big War Island is where the River Danube meets the River Sava in the centre of the city, and uh, it was for many years the frontier of the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So uh, he was saying, we could heal all the fault lines that run through the Balkans, get the young people of neighbouring republics who have been at war with this one for the past 10, 15 years, uh, and uh, we could get them all coming together for a love-in on Big War Island. And what we could then do would be to take advantage of all my New York Times connections by uh, writing stories about it, putting it in the media, and changing the country's image. So I thought, great, yes, of course, let's do it. How did we go about it? Well, I decided to postpone my resignation until I'd taken advantage of some of the connections I did have. And uh, the first thing, obviously, you need to do to organise a music festival is have some money, otherwise you can't book any bands. So I thought, well, maybe I could take advantage of some of the people who used to take advantage of me as a correspondent. Um, I could ask them uh, to do me a favour instead of vice versa, because their favours usually consisted of quoting them and spinning what they said uh, disguised as background facts. Um, <laughs> So I thought, well, I'll start with NATO. Um, and given that, <laughs> given that Big War Island is in the middle of the river, uh, we'll need a pontoon bridge to connect it to the shore. So maybe NATO would like to give me a pontoon bridge to say sorry for bombing this city four years earlier. <laughs> Oddly enough, they declined. I then tried the European Union, who's... Uh, chief diplomat, for want of a better title, was at that time a man called Javier Solana, who had personally presided over said bombing. And uh, he, was, he was in Belgrade, as it happened, to, to, uh, to stage one of his uh, sort of diplomatic frequent flyer stunts, where he'd come into town, lecture everybody, tell them what they need to do, hand over more war criminals, and maybe one day they could join the European Union. So I said, why don't you market yourselves to them instead of vice versa? You could put your flag on this island and call it Europa, and we could have a music festival there, and all the young people would love you, and then suddenly they'd be more Western-minded and therefore not voting in more nationalists to run their country into the ground. Uh, and he uh, had his press attaché remove me from his presence. <laughs> so I then decided, how about we try another guy who was a, a Nobel Prize-winning Auschwitz survivor by the name of Elie Wiesel, who I visited in his New York townhouse with my new mate from Belgrade and another guy who was a slightly dodgy Croat who agreed to lend us some money. And we said, well, we're going to put together this project to unite Serbs and Croats and other people from uh, neighbouring republics, uh, some Macedonians perhaps, some Kosovo Albanians even. We're going to bring them to Belgrade. We're going to promote peace, love and understanding, reconciliation. And uh, make sure that these sort of horrible things never happen again. And how about you know any rich people who could give us a million dollars? Now, at this point, he said he would introduce me to Bill Gates. Um, so I gleefully left his apartment and waited for the phone call that never arrived. So I was then forced to go back to Belgrade and try and make this thing happen with local support, uh, which... Uh, led to some rather eye-opening experiences because the only people with money in Serbia and uh, connections seemed to be guys who'd got rich in the wars. And they were therefore the mafia. And they had uh, a government as their sort of front operation, which was uh, cunningly applying for Western taxpayers' money in the form of aid to whitewash said mafia men as new businessmen and themselves as Democrats. 
And this is a very effective scheme, so we thought we'd, uh, we'd cash in on it a little bit. And uh, went and asked this guy who runs an insurance company, which is basically a front for his arms dealing operations, uh, if he would lend us some money. And uh, he very kindly agreed. Uh, the only condition was, of course, we had to pay it back after the festival. So I thought, fantastic, here we go. Um, suddenly there we are, able to book these bands. Um, I'm feeling cool, having felt like a square for most of my life. And uh, there I was, in town, thinking, this is going to work suddenly. Uh, whereupon the Serbian Prime Minister got shot dead in broad daylight uh, outside of his office. Uh, which complicated matters somewhat, and the government suggested to us that if we were really serious about organising this music festival and were expecting large numbers of people to arrive, particularly including some foreigners, we'd have to hire some expensive security. And uh, they knew just the guys uh, who turned out to effectively be uh, former war criminals like everybody else. And uh, they were dressed in black jumpsuits and they came in a, a group of about 500 of them. And uh, they took up residence on Big War Island, uh, which they patrolled with their muzzled Rottweilers and uh, pronounced it safe for us to stage our festival on. Uh, to cut a very long story short, uh, and without wishing to spoil my book, then I'd dearly love you to buy afterwards, um, we went ahead with this festival, and uh, 150,000 people came, and I thought my dreams had come true and everything was magical. Um, and uh, unfortunately, however, it wasn't quite as simple as that, because behind the scenes, nothing was going to plan. Um, there were people collecting money from the bars, which we were obviously going to use to pay back these very shady characters who we borrowed all the cash from to stage the event. Um, but they were stuffing this money into black bin liners and removing it from the island as fast as possible. And, uh, of course, I assumed they were going to take it to the porter cabin on the other side where they would count it and deposit it in our bank account. But when the whole thing got to a close, it turned out that there wasn't any money to pay many of the outstanding bills, including to the 1,500 people I'd talked into working at this thing. Uh, who all now thought I was scum. And uh, at this point, I got very confused because I'd set out to do something very positive and transformative and actually I'd made a fool of myself and I'd made lots of young people very angry instead of very happy and peace-loving. And uh, I thought, well, ouch! Uh, what can I do to numb the pain? Uh, what can I do to try and cheer myself up? Uh, and I'd hoped, of course, to get rich on the back of all this, and that was not going to happen now. But there was a large bag of drugs that was lurking backstage that we'd bought to give to the performers. And I thought, well, why don't I just take that? Maybe I can sell some of it and make some cash. Uh, and there was quite a lot in there. There was a big brick of coke, basically about 100 grams worth, a bag of 500 pills, and half a kilo of hashish. So I, I retreated to my apartment uh, and uh, proceeded to have a two-week bender. Whereupon I got extremely paranoid and started to realise that these people who were looking for money might come looking for the foreigner who would be presumed to have cash holed up in his apartment and they might knock on my door, discover this, uh, you know, whatever remained of that by this point after I'd invited various friends to come and help me bosh through it. Um, and they might then put me in jail for a very long time where I would be swarthily gang raped by charming men. Uh, so I figured it was time to do a runner. I left the country in a hurry and uh, I retreated to a farmhouse in France where I hid rather afraid because I didn't really know what had happened. Um, my business partner would only tell me that we'd been robbed by these uh, security guards who we'd employed who were of course in coalition with the government being funded by uh, Western taxpayers and effectively therefore a front for the CIA. Um, <laughs> at which point I said, ah, I'm in a Balkan conspiracy theory and decided I would have to write all about it. Now, when I was holed up in my farmhouse, sat there with as much hash as I could get my hands on and staying awake for several days, thinking I was going to write the equivalent of the on-the-road scroll, uh, <laughs> nothing came out apart from absolute confusion. 
because I just didn't know anything. I didn't know what had even happened in my own life. I couldn't make head and a tail of it. And slowly I smoked myself psychotic. <laughs> Whereupon I realized it was probably time to rethink my megalomaniac plans for changing the world and uh, have a little bit of a closer look at how I might change my life, perhaps starting with smoking less weed. <laughs> Now, fast forward 10 years, here I am. The book did finally get written. Um, I didn't remain in a position requiring me to get French doctors to inject Valium at my backside. And uh, the stupid ideas that I was playing with actually came true. In Croatia, there is now a uh, large festival scene that you know, young people from Western Europe flock to each summer, paying vast amounts of money. And if you or any of your friends might be going there this summer, and you would like to know the story of the pioneering event that ought to have come to that wonderful conclusion, you can buy my book for a fiver and enjoy it. Thank you very much. Stand up tragedy. Have you ever performed at Fringe before? I haven't. No. no, I used to live in Edinburgh and I never managed to actually make it to a single Fringe performance. Um, I think people try and avoid it um, unless they're able to make money out of it because I mean it really takes over the whole of the old, you know, the, the, the Royal Mile, the, the old bit of town. So um, if you live here and you don't normally go there, it's tourist town anyway. But are you looking forward to performing? I am. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, it's always exciting to get on stage. I always like to try and mix it up a little bit and do something a bit different. And uh, yes, there's always a little bit of nerves, but that, that keeps life exciting. What's it like to um, perform your story to an audience live rather than have them read it in a book? Um, well, I guess my talent is more as a writer than as a performer. So um, it's, it's scary from the point of view of having to confront a whole new set of skills, but it's a lot more liberating because uh, I'm not tied to the perfectionist pursuit of words. I can just say what comes into my head and see what happens. And, I find I get taken into some interesting directions, partly from the crowd's reaction. Do you think you'll get much inspiration, maybe something tragic, around from the other performers at the Fringe? Um, I certainly hope to get inspired by the rest of the people at Stand Up Tragedy. Um, my experience so far has been yeah, it's an amazing mix of, uh, of characters with different backgrounds, different ways of expressing themselves and all sorts of different things to say. So that usually provides a fairly rich mix to take home. So storytelling is something that I care about personally because I am involved with Spark London which runs storytelling nights across the city of London and I brought a bit of Spark London feel up to the PBH Free Fringe where I ran a storytelling workshop. It was really all about uh, connecting directly with the audience because I think storytelling when done live on stage especially when it's unprepared an open mic or something people always think about the idea of the story but they don't necessarily think about the idea of the character and so my workshop was really about trying to find ways of revealing oneself through telling the story that hour of workshop went by very quickly but we recorded some stories as part of it that will be going out on Spark London. You can find Spark London's podcast on iTunes, Mixcloud and you can go over to their website www.sparklondon.com to find out more about what they do. I was very impressed as always by the variety and interestingness of the people who came. Spark London is where I first met our next performer who you're going to hear now. Uh, this is Patricia Padorian. I invited her up to the Edinburgh Festival to perform at Stand Up Tragedy and here's one of her moving tales for you now. So um, on 
March 29th of this year, my grandmother died. And it was 25 years to the day after she got on a train from her little city of Bayamada to come travel to Brasov, Romania, uh, in anticipation of my birth. And March 29th, if you remember, six months ago was Good Friday, so she had the good sense to die on a holiday. And the rest of the family, my parents, my grandfather and I were in a car driving from Paris to Nice. My grandfather um, turned 93 in May, so it was kind of a joint birthday outing. And we thought she would be fine by herself. We knew it was kind of the end, but we knew it was the end in the sense that I thought I'll visit her in July rather than September. So we got the call and five minutes later we had to start planning the funeral. And the way things work in Romania, maybe not in all of Romania, but the way things work in the city where my grandparents live is nobody works on the weekend. If it's um, the, uh, the holy resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, nobody works. Um, I mean, people work even less than they would anyway. So we had five days to put together the funeral for a very specific reason. You have three days in Bayamada to get a death certificate. Without a death certificate, you can't have a funeral. After your three-day grace period, you have two more days, but it gets bureaucratically difficult. You have to go get it from the judge directly. The, the point is, after five days, if you don't have the death certificate, the death is considered suspicious, the body is collected, and an autopsy is um, summarily performed. Additional important fact, nobody in Bayamada embalms bodies. So after five days, you have kind of a soup going on. And so my grandmother died on Friday, so that was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that, those were the three days, so this shit wasn't gonna happen in the three days, so we had five days. Um, we had to call individually every single person we wanted to invite to the funeral because the newspaper would only open on Monday, the obituary would appear on Tuesday, Tuesday had to be the funeral, that was day five. So my mom got on the phone and had to say over and over again, hello, Mrs. whatever, my, grandma, oh, my mother's just died. One of the mistakes she made was um, she called in the wrong priest to do the service, um, and then she had to call, cancel the priest, call the right priest. One of the guests we invited, my grandmother um, founded and ran a kindergarten, which is still running, um, and one of the guests was the woman she left in charge when she retired, Mrs. Monica. We called her, and she said, you know, I'll help you with the funeral, whatever. I'll do whatever I can to help you. Mrs. Wanaka is the daughter of a priest. And my, my mom called her right after the, the, the priest snafu. And she said, you know, like in all of the stress, like, Mrs. Monica, you won't believe what I just did. I just called the wrong priest. I didn't know which priest was my mother's. And she said, if you don't know which priest is your mother? Is that just mean your mother? That that just means your mother made no effort to be known by her priest. So within hours of my grandmother dying, this woman is accusing my grandmother of not being religious enough. Beautiful. So we get to Romania a couple of days later, and the day before the funeral. By the way, day five after my grandmother's death, 
that Tuesday, the day of the funeral, my 25th birthday. We get back, the day before the funeral is a kind of memorial service, and everybody's invited, and it's 15 minutes, it's not a big deal. Mrs. Monica is there, and afterwards she comes up to me and she says, I know you've been in Romania in the past few years, and you didn't call me, and you didn't come by to say hello, and you didn't come by to ask how my grandmother, how my grandmother, how my granddaughter's been doing, because she and I used to play together when we were young. So, and she said, and as luck would have it, my grandmother's lying dead two feet away, and this is happening. But as luck would have it, my granddaughter Ina is here, so why don't you come over tonight and say hello? And this is where my life got a little surreal, because I went over to her house after the memorial service for dinner, and on the way there, in the car, Mrs. Monica is going on and on and on about her granddaughter's boyfriend. And I have no idea why. It's fucking clear she has an ax to grind. To this day, I don't know what that ax is, why she was grinding it, I have no idea. But by the time we got to her house, I was expecting to meet an Adonis, who's also a medical genius. <laughs> because her granddaughter, my friend Ina, met, she's in medical school, she met this guy in medical school. Um, and, you know, it's just a perfect situation for them. Isn't that wonderful? So we get to the house, and I walk in. And so this is the image I have in my head, like, you know, Michelangelo's David. And um, a little gay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, with, you know, just some kind of whatever the medical genius that springs to mind in your minds is that brain in David's body. So I walk into the house, and I walk to the coat closet, and then I walk back to the kitchen where Ina's cleaning out the fridge like you do when you're home for the weekend. And on this little walk, I walk past a tub of lard, for better, I mean, I have no other way of describing him, sitting on the couch, shirt halfway up his stomach, like this, changing the channel. And I ignore the tub of lard, because he isn't present in my conscience, because I'm expecting Michelangelo's David. Um, and it turns out this is the boyfriend. So Mrs. Monica walks me over to him and says, you know, Sorin, or as he's known in that house, Sorinel, meet Patricia. And we shake hands, and he's fucking changing the channel while he shakes my hand, so he's a real catch. Um, <laughs> Ina and I go upstairs to catch up, and a few, maybe a couple hours later, we're called down for dinner. And dinner is a pile of um, french fries, and I have to, that's not what you say here, but you know, a pile of chips. Um, and meat and bread. Sorin, Sorinel, or as I call him, Lump sits down at the dinner table, lights a cigarette, and eats his chips, and eats his bread. And Ina, my friend, is like, do you want to get some vitamins in there, honey? And her grandmother says, oh, shush. Don't you criticize your future husband? Sorinel, just whatever, as long as you like it, mama's happy. Tell me what mama can get you. I'm frankly surprised that she and Ina's mother, who was also at the dinner table, didn't just blow him under the table. 
And it was like absurdist theater, and I'm sitting there dressed all in black, like barely picking at my food, like what the fuck is happening? Why am I here? I'm here to meet this guy. I'm here to meet Lump. She's brought me here to meet Lump, and I don't understand why. Um, and at one point, she turns toward me, Mrs. Monica, and she says, uh, you're not eating. And I, I, I haven't eaten in five days, because my grandmother was like my second mother. And I didn't think I needed to explain this, but she, she turns toward her granddaughter and says, see, this is how you keep up your figure, by not eating. Lump is smoking away. And when I left that night, the next day was the funeral. And it had been raining for weeks in Romania. And my 25th birthday, my grandmother's funeral, was a cruelly perfect spring day. My grandmother was in her coffin. We had to take the coffin outside. There were so many people. They wouldn't fit in the chapel. There were so many wreaths that she looked like Snow White. She had a nice lace sort of doily <laughs> over the coffin. And there was a breeze, and it would sort of, you know, like Kate Middleton on her, on her wedding day. That sort of actually, sadly. Um, and she was wearing a maroon suit that um, my grandmother came to visit us in 2004 in the US. And she and my mother and I went shopping together. And we bought matching maroon suits and matching strings of pearls, which I think I was 16 at the time. I didn't understand why I had to wear these things. But now they're actually kind of great. So my mom and I have the pantsuit. My grandmother got the skirt suit. Because in Romania, if you're an older woman, you can't wear pants unless it looks like you shit yourself. Like, they can't fit you well, because then you're trying to be sexy. You're trying to be something you shouldn't be. So she got the skirt suit. And um, three years ago, in the haze, like in the middle of her dementia, my grandmother, like she couldn't, she'd go for days and not say anything that made sense. She took my mom's hand, took her to the closet, and said, um, you can't touch this suit. This is my forever suit because my two girls and I have matching ones. And my grandmother was there lying in her coffin, and Mrs. Monica was on the other side doing the, um, the sermon simultaneously with the priest, because she could, because her father was a priest and she had to show off. And I thought, well, this is a terrible experience, but what I have to show for it is 25 years with a wonderful woman who loves me, who gave a lot to her community. And what you have is a benign but irritating lump. After the performance, producer Bryony caught up with Patricia to ask her what it's like to share something so personal in front of an audience. I was really hoping it would be cathartic. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't the total cathart, but I don't know, my grandmother is dead, so really, how much catharsis can I get on that? Um, but it, it was very sort of liberating, because, I don't know, it was just like so many things happened, there were so many funny aspects to that experience that it didn't really make it into the 10 minutes, but, um, 
it was it was kind of like a bl- good bloodletting for me. Yeah, when you tell a story, do you do you feel the same tragedies? It depends. For some, for some parts of it, yeah. Talking about the funeral itself, I, I really did feel like I was back there. But talking about the more sort of absurd aspects of it, that's more like I'm as I'm telling it, I'm sort of watching it unfold in front of me, like seeing myself in it in a weird way. How do you select a good story to tell live? I don't have like a a formal uh, rubric, but generally the ones that have worked the best are the ones that have some sort of universal element to them and that are a good mix of funny and poignant. Um, and that's and the stories that I've heard that that I've, I really liked are the same. How do audiences respond to live storytelling nights such as Spark London? They perform that a lot. Really well. I think they're really engaged in it, uh, which is sometimes surprising given how much alcohol gets consumed. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, they're really great audiences, and they're really all great performers. That's what I, actually that's what I like the most. It's just like all of the stories that get told and there's always some part of it that I relate to even if it's something that I've never experienced myself. And how are you enjoying being part of the Fringe as a performer for the first time? It's surreal. Uh, I never thought I would be a performer of any kind so this is great. It's like a big community. So today was all about storytelling. Tomorrow might be about spoken word, it might be about music, it might be about comedy, it could be anything, but whatever it will be, it will be tragic. So listen out for it, and for the rest of the days through August, when we're going out daily. Find the podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and the Stitcher Smart Radio app. You can find out what we're doing at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Stand Up For Tragedy. And we'd like to hear your tragic moments. So if you want to tweet those, hashtag tragic moments. You can find us on Facebook where you can like us or you can befriend us because everybody should make friends with some tragedy sometimes in their lives. Come on over. Share your tragedies with us and remember that tragedy is not just about being sad, it's also about catharsis. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins with audio production from Stephen Harvey. The music comes from Sam Wilkinson, who you can email at radiojuan at gmail.com. The rest of the music was produced by George Brufton, written by the Reactionaries with added bagpipes from Vaughan Grandin. I'm Dave, I'm your host, and the tragedy is once again over. Over.